This episode is brought to you by the McGill Dobson Center for Entrepreneurship. Our mission is to inspire, teach, and develop world-class entrepreneurs. Now, Made at McGill is usually a narrative-driven, highly produced podcast about the origin stories of McGill's top entrepreneurs. But this episode is different. It's experimental. It doesn't match that description at all. It's more of a Friends of McGill episode, and it's unedited audio from a live conversation I had on stage at McGill with Philip Baudouin. Philip Baudouin is co-founder and senior vice president of research at Element AI. Element AI delivers AI software products at scale to help people work smarter. This conversation explores Philip's journey on the way to co-founding Element AI and how they plan to democratize artificial intelligence with a non-predatory collaborative research model. He also shares some stories from his time at Google that led to him making a stand for ethical AI, including conversations he had with Tristan Harris from the Center for Humane Technology. Before we dive in, let me give you a rough idea of what Philip's path looked like up until now. After doing his bachelor's, master's, and PhD in computer science at Université de Montréal, he went on to do his postdoc at UBC. Throughout his studies and research, he was always working on side projects in industries like computer graphics, video games, and software. After his postdoc, he spent five years at Google, where, among other things, he worked on the Google Chrome New Tab page that you probably use every day. And in 2016, he co-founded Element AI, which recently topped the annual list of Canadian tech companies with the potential to reach a billion dollars in value. Having said all that, Let's jump into the conversation. So you wrote an article two years ago about compassionate artificial intelligence. It's similar to some of the themes that we talked about today. So I'm curious about, like, when did you start thinking about this shift? Because some of these things are a byproduct of the fact that a lot of companies have an advertising-based business model, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm curious about how you started thinking about these things. Yeah, that's... I. <coughs> I would date that back to um, my days at Google. So prior to founding Element AI, I was a software engineer at, um, at Google here in Montreal working on uh, Google Chrome. Um, and essentially, I was passionate about the, all of that, right? The way people interact with the, the tools we build. And um, back then, we were using more and more data to, to try to... to um, first of all, analyze the way people use these tools and eventually uh, to tune the tools. A lot of that was done manually back then. Uh, today, it's all moving to machine learning. But even when it was done manually, the process was similar. It's just like, okay, you take a bunch of user interaction, you analyze them, you tune something, and you check if it has changed the interaction or not. And even then, it's, it, it, you know, like it, it wasn't quite what we see here, but it became obvious to me that there was uh, a danger to that if we, uh, we weren't careful about um, defining what it meant for a user to um, have, you know, we used to, at, at Google, we used the term happiness a lot, right? We said the user should be happy using the app. Um, and I was like, okay, that's nice, but what does it mean, right? If happy means, uh, I don't know, like I'm, I'm drunk and having fun, or does it mean I'm finding meaning in what I do, right? And it's a very fuzzy definition. And I think I, I started thinking that we all have these two aspects uh, to 
for us. And really, if, if you are not deliberately trying to drive it one way or the other, where you will land is up to chance. And if you are selling advertisement, which was the case for Google and which is the case for most of the tools we use today, your ultimate goal is get the user to return to your place, your website, and get the user to spend more time there. And if you're not careful, the best way to do that is to develop slot machines. So back then I started interacting with a guy called Tristan Harris. You can look him up. He was also a pro he was a product manager. I was a software engineer. He was a product manager at Google, and since then he, he went out and started a, some something called the Center for Humane Technology, uh, which has it's a bit of a weird name. Sometimes it feels like oh we're going to to kill chicken in a human way. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, I, I very much align with, with, with what he was trying to, to do, right? Uh, anyway, so, yeah, it's been with me since then. Cool. Can you tell us some vivid stories that you have from, from your college days that have shaped you into who you are today, uh, professionally speaking? <laughs> <laughs> some I won't tell. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think, yeah, let, let me talk about, about PhD. Who here is doing a PhD? Like, raise your hand if you're, yeah? Okay. Um, who, who's finding it hard? <laughs> so I think for, for me, I spent four days working on, uh, four days, yes, four years. Four years on my PhD, and um, uh, towards the end, like, say, last year, year and a half, it, it was getting really tough, you know, when you're, the thesis writing and like collecting all your ideas and always finding ah do I have enough there right and I I think um, going through this for me was was a revealing moment right it, it became really really hard but I found tricks and ways for for me to go through it if you ever go and and if you read French you can read my thesis I was forced to write it in French University of Montreal things um, but um, nobody read it unfortunately I had some papers good but um, if you read the, like, I have this blurb at the beginning, which I wrote, which kind of tries to capture this, right? This idea that it was hard. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, yeah, I think just the, the, like, the act of going through this and, and figuring things out for myself and, and finding a way to have, to, to have a narrative throughout the entire thesis uh, was something very important for me. It, it taught me perseverance, patience, and basically, uh, yeah, to, to, to be at the same time very alone and, you know, to be confident. So, yeah. Okay. And then moving on to Google, do you, do you have some, I don't know, funny stories from when you guys built the new tab page? Because since oh, yeah. then, Google Chrome <laughs> is now like 2 billion installs and is accounting for like two-thirds of all internet browser activity. So yeah. what do you remember from back then? Uh, what can I tell you? <laughs> I have to read the. Where's the lawyer? I need to, <laughs> I need to check the terms of. Fun. Uh, okay, so there's there's a funny story I like to 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 tell. It's um it's not related necessarily directly to it. Well, it is. So in Chrome on the new tab page, like you would say, some people are working on this, and yeah, some people are. <laughs> it's just like. One of the main features of that page are uh, the recommendation is the recommendation system, right? So the recommendation system, what you 
which we call the most visited website. You have like a couple of, of little icons there that represent your most visited websites. And we, want, we wanted to throw more machine learning in this so that we could maybe um, have a better idea of what you do in the morning and the, in the afternoon so the recommendation could be adapted or maybe based on what, what you've, you've recently seen because we know that when you open Google Docs, you tend to open Google Spreadsheet or whatever, right? So we wanted to capture that better. And we started talking to a bunch of other teams within Google uh, who built similar recommendation engine. And my, I think one of my favorite stories from Google comes from one of these conversations. So it was this team that was building the YouTube recommendation engine. And if you, you've been on YouTube, you know that what they do when they present a video is that they give you a thumbnail, one, one frame for, for that video, the representative frame of that video. Uh, to try to convey what's in it so that you can click and see it. So they were like, okay, let's deploy machine learning in this to try to pick the best possible frame. And they did that by trying a bunch of different frames and if the user clicked more on one, they kept this one. If they clicked less, they, they dropped it. And they, they started optimizing it. And the way Google works is whenever they have an idea like that, they will try it uh, on a subset of users, right? They do like what used to be called A-B testing back, back in the day. Now it's like a, it's a full, full science of how to do good experiments and that's how they run the entire ship. In this case, they did deploy it to a subset of users and the thing learned and it optimized itself and it converged and eventually it got some frames. And the comment of the guy telling me how it, how well, quote unquote, it worked is, we turned YouTube into a porn site. <laughs> so basically, the frames that worked the best were the frame that had the most skin in them. That's what people click on, right? So I guess, you know, it, it kind of connects back to the story I was telling at the beginning here. But uh, yeah, just, it, you know, this is striking to see that these things can happen uh, there too. And rewinding even before college, do you remember getting your first computer and what was your okay. first interactions with technology? What was that like? Mm -hmm. Ah, first computer. TRS-80. Anybody knows what the TRS-80 is here? Yay! <laughs> My first computer was a TRS-80. I was, I don't know, I, I was quite, quite young. I think um, it have been 10 or 12 around there. Um, and the good thing with the TRS-80 was uh, it sucked. <laughs> See, there was nothing you could do on it except program. So I learned, I, I taught myself to program very quickly. I started programming little games for my sister. She never played them, but it was good <laughs> And uh, at some point, I started running a Bolton board system, a BBS. VBSs were, you know, the internet before the internet existed. It was the internet for your small town. So I ran a BBS out of my basement. Like I, I convinced my father to buy a second phone line, landline, right? So that I could run this thing. And so I'm grateful to my parents to this day because they indulge in my crazy stuff. <laughs> and like they, they, they bought that and I had my little modem there and I was receiving call. And I had set this up on, on this computer that was totally not made for this. 
at some point I got hacked, like I hacked bad. The guy just deleted everything, and I had no backups. <laughs> it was the end of that BBS. Anyway, so yeah, so this, this is when I started. And then coming back a little to the future, do you remember the? Can you tell us the founding story of Element AI and talk about some of the initial conversations that shaped it into what it is today? Yeah. So, um. Element AI, like it start like for me it started roughly uh, I think was it two or three years ago now three years ago about roughly to the, in December uh, during a conference called uh, back then it was called NIPS it's been renamed to NERIPS for obvious reason women will tell you um, <laughs> we would call it conference NIPS anyway. Uh, and this is the big machine learning conference. It was held in Montreal. I was still at Google, and I was just starting the, the machine learning group for Chrome there. Basically wanted to build all the machine learning services in, in Chrome. There were none. Um, and because of that, I convinced my, my boss, hey, let me go to the conference. It's in Montreal. It's going to be good. He didn't know that I would find another job there. <laughs> but um, yeah, what happened is I ran into Nicolas Chapadas, one of the other co-founders of, of Element. Uh, and um, I was like, oh, maybe I can you know, convince them to join Google and the two of us will build this great machine learning team for Chrome. So I invite him to lunch and I start chatting with him. And I'm like, oh, you know, I'm starting this group. And he's like, stop, stop, stop. Let me tell you about one thing before we go there. And he starts pitching something called the AI Studio. I mean, what is the AI Studio? And, and the, the idea behind it was very, very appealing. And actually, it was Element AI. It was the, the founding piece of Element AI that he was pitching to me. And in the end, I was like, oh, you know what? I think I'm the one who joins him. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's how it happened. This is, this is how I, I joined. I, I, after that, I met GF, naturally, and, uh, and, and Martel, and... and Joshua in nuisance. Actually, Nicolas Chapadas, we go back to to these days of the TRS-80. You know, I, he was on my BBS, I was on his. We were both in Trois Rivières, right? This is a, and uh, and that's basically why I I started chatting with him back then. So we go back, and this is yeah, that's how we started this. And what about like the approach you wanted to take with the company? What were the conversations around that? Yeah. So. The idea of AI, be... okay, so at the root, like it's the classic, let's democratize AI, right? Everybody agrees, oh, it's a good idea, only Google and Amazon and Facebook and blah, 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 they're the only one to have access to it, let's make sure that all the businesses all around the world can have access to similar tools and do what they want to do. But it's, it's not enough, you need something deeper than that. And basically the idea was, how can we do this, right? If you really believe that the only way to do machine learning is to have the crazy amounts of data that these super mega huge company can have access to, well, just, just give up because who's going to have access to the entire internet worth of cat images? Um, so, but, but the idea that, that we had at the beginning was like, well, this is, if there is one trend that's going to continue in machine learning is that we'll be able to do better and better with less and less data, right? And we'll be able to do that because we'll, we'll be able to train systems that are able to transfer what they understand. 
from learning about one domain to a similar but different domain. And at first, you, you can't do that very well. If you train something to recognize cat images, it's not even better at recognizing dog images, right? But the more you go, the, the bigger these gaps are able to fill because science is moving forward, right? We didn't believe in, in you know, the, the idea behind a deep mind was like, oh, the singularity is near, let's all work like crazy on it, and as soon as we found the singularity, there's no need for anything else. This, is, this, wasn't, this wasn't Element AI. We thought, no, no, only using machine learning that we, that, that's been progressing, we can do so much more in so many different areas but the idea was, if we start to collect all of this, these diverse data sets, we can start to train systems that are generic, right? They're not, you know, stealing the data from one company and sending it to another. They understand something at a deeper level, and, and therefore they can be trained with less data to reach a similar level of quality as what we could, you could do with, with the entire internet. So it was a very um, theoretical idea, and there was an entire business model on how to do that, that, that I thought was really good too. And uh, yeah, that's why I jumped in. So Element AI aims to democratize AI with a non-predatory collaborative research model. What does that look like in practice? Yeah. So at the basis of... of of this thesis is the idea that, that research is super important, right? Because this only works if research moves forward. So we want to be an active part of that research just so that we master the outcomes of, and we can actually maybe help researchers push that agenda forward. But there are many ways to approach research and scientific collaboration and academic collaboration. Um, and that's actually been with, with Elements since the beginning. I mean, Nicola and myself, we are both PhDs from, uh, from University of Montreal. I think he did it here. He did his undergrad at McGill. Um, but we, we also both have the academic mindset at heart very much. Um, we love, uh, we just love the way science is, is done in a very selfless uh, selfless fashion in, in academia. And we've noticed that some labs tend to see academia as a, a resource that you can, you know, leech from and, and get IP out of. And, you know, you, you patent your thing on your side and then you can own this. And we didn't want to do that. We, well, we, at least we wanted to have a very active... Uh, research arm that would embrace the academic mindset, right? And that could benefit from it because I actually do believe that it's not necessarily from the patent that you benefit the most. It's from your ability to interact with brilliant researchers on a regular basis. So very early on, we set up this network, of, we call it the fellow network, where we basically knocked on the door of all our friends, uh, researchers and the in machine learning from McGill, Vestimalyad, UBC, Waterloo, everywhere. And we said, hey, we're starting this new company. We're building a fellow network. The idea is essentially for you to help us uh, understand the problems as we see them. And at, like there is no notion of signing out IP if you, know, you can work with other companies. So it was set up as a very collaborative uh, network from the beginning. 
And it was very refreshing to a lot of professors who were signing deals with other companies where they had to give, give up IP rights. Like some profs even told us, well, you know, the student can't talk to that student because the student is working on a research project for company A and this one is working for a research project for company B. And we're like, well, we're not in it for the IP. We're in it for the, ex the exposure to great ideas, right? And it worked super well. Uh, it really created this initial momentum that we needed in order to gain the, the credibility. And actually, what it meant was, you know, the way you bootstrap a company like Element AI is, you know, we're essentially building products. But the way to bootstrap that and make sure you're building products that the market wants is you start with some form of uh, advisory. You go to these companies, they all want to do AI, uh, and you make sure that you can provide valuable service at the stage they're at, which tends to be at the um, strategic advisory stage. Um, and we were able to do that super well because we had that fellow network. And when a company came to us with some very hard question in AI, we almost always had a prof in that network that was able to pinpoint exactly why we could do it, why we couldn't do it, how we could move forward. So it, it was a really, really nice way to set this up. And to this day, it's still at the heart of what we do. Cool. Uh, my last question, which is related to this, before I pass it on to Igor, is one of the other big ideas you've been talking and writing about lately, besides compassionate AI, is why research is customer-centric. And that's related to what you were just talking about. And you explored this idea of AI helping humans manage diversity and complexity. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So, at a very high level, if you think about machine learning uh, and, and traditional com com programming, okay, just like compare both for a minute here. Traditional programming is, let, let me look at the complex system, let me try to understand a complex system, simplify it, and write rules that allow me to interact with it. And the rules you write are, you know, these lines of code, and you are limited by, they're somewhat limited in complexity. So when you want to work in this very procedural way, uh, it becomes really hard to do if your system is crazy complex. So what we will tend to do is we will work at first simplifying the system so that we can control it using these procedural ways. Right? So for example, if you're, uh, you're building um, uh, a sorting center, like, like the Amazon sorting center, you will place everything on a nice little grid and you will make sure that you can control everything very precisely so that you... But this is not how nature works, you know? Like, I, I'd like to take another example the exam, uh, in agriculture, right? Like, you want, to, um, you want to do agriculture at scale, so you're, you're, you tell yourself, I'm going to build machines to um, recolte, to yep. whatever. <laughs> Harvest, thanks. To harvest uh, the stuff. So these machines are, are, you know, built using very traditional rules. It's mechanical in that case, but it's still very limited in complexity. So the way you will tackle the problem is you say, I'll change my environment. I'll change the system itself so that I can tackle it with simple, rigid rules. This harvesting machine. So you plant everything in nice straight rows, and you have your machine that's able to collect things that's planted in nice straight rows. With AI, you don't have to build very rigidly scripted systems, 
What you can do instead is you can probe your system and you can learn about it. And even if it's complex, you can try to learn its dynamics and you can work with it in a, in a much more organic way, even if the system is, is very complex. So in agriculture, again, it means like maybe there's a better way to do agriculture at scales that, that is more chaotic, maybe, that, that has a lot less structure to it in the system itself, but that you're able to tackle because you built a drone that has the ability to deal with complex systems using vision, using a bunch of other sensors that's able to pick up apples even if you, know, you haven't structured everything super cleanly, super perfectly. So I believe this, this is the part we haven't seen about AI, the part where we stop forcing, transforming the environment in which the systems operate. And instead, what we do is we, we develop more complex tools that are able to, op- that are using AI and machine learning and that are sensing the, the environment in order to operate even when the environment is super complex. Thank you. This gives me a lot of hope. I actually think this is, this is a big way in which AI help uh, solve some of the world's biggest problems. Hey, it's Mo. I hope you enjoyed that story. If you want easier access to upcoming episodes of Made at McGill, I recommend you subscribe to this podcast on whatever app you use. Also, do you have a wantrepreneur in your life? Maybe your Uncle Bill, who's always talking about his grand business ideas. Consider this. Find one episode in this podcast that you think could give them a slight push. The little nudge that they need to begin their journey as a maker. And have them listen to that episode. And if Uncle Bill ends up turning into the next Bill Gates, who changes the world and along the way becomes a genius billionaire philanthropist, hey, you can take all the credit. Thanks for listening.